Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Tom Bevan. Tom is the co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, the indispensable website during elections and generally for anyone interested in politics at any time. So if you're not a regular visitor, you should absolutely check out RCP, of course. You can also follow Tom on Twitter at TomBevanRCP. Tom is also, I think it's fair to say, an old friend of City Journal, and we're excited to have him on the podcast today to talk about what's going on right now. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Brian. Good to be with you. You know, the big question everyone is asking is obviously, is the election still on? Uh, Do the Trump campaign's legal challenges have any chance of succeeding, in your view? And how many votes uh, would really have to shift to change the election outcome? which, you know, uh, the mainstream press outlets and social media platforms are encouraging encouraging everyone to see as definitive, but maybe they're not so definitive. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell exactly, uh, you know, how this is going to shake out. I mean, and and where the, how, how much merit each one of these different, court cases has. I I think some of them have some merit, others don't. And I mean, the problem for the Trump campaign is, is that, you know, he's going to need to change the outcome in three states. This is not just flipping 500 votes in a single state or 5,000 votes in a single state. It is, you know, 15,000 votes, just under 15,000 in in Arizona. Um, It's, you know, just over 12,000 in Georgia. And and then it's, you know, it's 47,000 and growing in Pennsylvania. And so I think it's an uphill battle. Um, I think the president has every right to make his case in court. And and we should not, you know, try and I think there's a real rush uh, on the part of the Democrats, which is understandable, and the part of the media, which is less understandable, in my opinion, mm-hmm. that this has to be, you know, if we if we wait you know, 48 hours, 72 hours for the president to, to file his legal challenges and have his day in court that somehow, you know, we're, we're shredding democracy. Um, so uh, I think it's an uphill battle. I think the chances of him overturning enough votes in enough states to, to, uh, is really, really slim. Yeah. Um, you know, the other, the other uh, big races everybody's starting to look at now um, are the Georgia recounts, where the two Republican senators, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, both won in in the state, but they didn't reach 50%. So they face uh, these runoffs, which I think are in on January 5th, early January, anyway, uh, control over the US Senate will hinge on the outcome. So these are going to be, you know, hotly contested, obviously. Uh, um, um, races and everybody's going to be paying attention to them. Do you have any sense of of how uh, those races might go? Um, you know, can we handicap them at this point? Well, I mean, I th- I think look, the Democrats really uh, you know turned out the vote in in Georgia, um, and, yeah, and, and that's that's actually a part of you know another part of that question would be is is Georgia really becoming a kind of uh, purple state. 
I think it is. I mean, I, I think th- this year proved that it is. And, and you know, there's no reason to think that it won't uh, continue to be competitive. Um, and as, as someone on Twitter said, you know, I, my thinking is that Georgia sort of reverts to its factory settings, as, as this person put it. Um, and because it is still a, it may be heading to purple, but it's still a reddish purple. And, and I, so I think, especially if you're talking about a situation where January 5th date, um, you know, and, but again, as you mentioned, I mean, both sides are going to be pouring huge, uh, amounts of, of money and effort into winning these because the stakes are very, very high. Um, so, so I think it's going to be competitive. Um, but if I had to handicap it at this point, I'd probably give the Republicans, both of them, uh, you know, a slight edge. The, um, the GOP did, uh, surprisingly well, uh, in the house picking up a number of seats uh, as yet undetermined, but, uh, but at least five and maybe as many as, as 12 I've read, uh, you know, was this shift, in your view, a result of Trump's coattails, just uh, driving up uh, the number of voters getting to the, the polls, or was it the result of other factors like the defund the police push uh, that some Democrats were embracing, or I, I guess it could be both of these things? Uh, this certainly, though, wasn't the blue wave repudiation of Trump that the Democrats were hoping for, right? No, no. And I, I think it was a combination of factors, including the fact that Donald Trump, uh, you know, really did help juice Republican turnout in a lot of these battleground states. And I mean, look, you got, you know, what, 71 million votes <laughs> more than any other candidate in history, except for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's one of it going to be, you know, if he doesn't prevail in court, it's going to be one of the ironies that he he managed to to. Uh, juice Republican turnout so that they basically held the Senate and and avoided losing you know a net gain or net loss of only one seat and we'll see how the recount or the the runoffs play out. Not a single Republican, I think, running for re-election in the House lost. They didn't lose any state legislatures. Um, you know, it was a remarkably strong night for Republicans and and I think more than anything, I think uh, you know some people and I should say. I'm not going to let let a bunch of pundits off the hook here because there were plenty of pundits who were predicting a blue wave and predicting, uh, you know, Biden landslide at the top of the ticket. But but of those, I think the the House piece was the most shocking to folks because uh, hardly anyone gave Republicans a chance of of winning any seats, let alone, uh, you know, coming within, you know, just a few seats of actually winning back the House. So. Um, I do think it was a not not a blue wave at all, and and a real miss in terms of uh, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into the polling, uh, you know, right. in terms of the the reality on the ground versus the perception and the narrative that was circulating in in the you know political class, the pundit class, and the elite media. Another, I think, uh, striking shift of the evening. Uh, I'd like to get your your thoughts on, or the election day, I should say, um, is the movement uh, among 
Hispanics toward the GOP in Southern Florida and Texas. Um, do you see this as a as a trend or just something unique to this election? You know, and do do the election results, especially in those states, validate the idea that the GOP is starting to become the party for working class voters? Uh, or was this just really about Trump? You know, before the pandemic struck, the economic growth was uh, leading to a significant wage increase among the lowest uh, income quarter in the country, and there was record low unemployment among blacks and Hispanics. So perhaps this emphasis on work and opportunity uh, has, you, you know, had something to do with that outcome. But but maybe this also points the way forward for the Republicans, as as some are arguing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's too early to tell. It is a fascinating development and one that could have significant, profound, you know, ramifications moving forward. But we'll have to see. I mean, <clears throat> look, that was one of the questions about Barack Obama. I mean, he took, he sort of refashioned the Democratic coalition, right? He he did away with Bill Clinton's, you know, new Democrat uh, coalition, rebuilt it in his own form and fashion, which was, you know, huge turnout among black voters. Um, he got, you know, huge uh, portions of sort of, uh, you know, well-educated, uh, <clears throat> wealthy whites, progressives, right? And he put, and and there was a question of whether that coalition that that Obama, you know, put together twice was, was durable and transferable to anyone else. And, and we found out in 2016 that, for the most part, uh, it was not transferable, uh, certainly not to Hillary Clinton. Now, you could make the argument, I mean, it's it's impossible to prove the, the negative here, but that it might have somebody, a different candidate may have been able to keep that coalition together and, and win. But um, but to a certain degree, that was all about Obama, right? Mm-hmm. And, and one of that, one of the pieces of that is he had these... Uh, you know, sort of working class whites and, and rural folks, uh, you know, non-college educated white voters uh, in places like Wisconsin and and Michigan and Iowa and these other places. And um, Donald Trump completely uh, took those voters away and refashioned in the process, refashioned the Republican Party into the party of the working class. And, and I do not think that... I mean, I think the I think he's fundamentally changed the Republican Party. I don't think it's going back to the party that it was before. I think that the economic populist message is is something that you know Republicans have been talking about opportunity forever, right? But but they'd also been talking about it. And the backdrop to that was you know unfettered free trade, um, which which was you know finally Republican voters um, revolted against uh, in in you know, 2008, 2012, as they watch their communities get sort of hollowed out. Um, I think Donald Trump has, has basically restored that, uh, <clears throat> uh, that peace to the, to the Republican coalition. And by the way, as we saw, he's, he's that, you know, focus on class as opposed to race, focus on economic opportunity and populism, which is backed up by policies that, 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 you know, working class folks are seeing rising wages, uh, you know, fair trade agreements, not just free trade, but fair trade, um, you know, those kinds of things. And you see that that is now crossing, crossing over um, ethnic lines. 
Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know what the future of the Republican Party holds. I don't know whether Donald Trump's going to continue to be the, the leader of it. But whoever emerges as the leader of the Republican Party moving forward, I think um, is is going to have to. Um, it would be catastrophic to try and, uh, you know, deviate from that message when they've had such success in terms of, of uh, you know, not only with uh, non-college educated whites, but but now with with Hispanics and even with black voters, particularly young black males, um, I think that's where the party is going to be. You know, that's the path the party's on. I don't think it's going to change. I think the Republican Party that all these never Trump folks are have been pining for to go back to is is yeah, you know that's a fantasy. It's never going to happen. Um, another state which had a surprising election result. Uh, was close to home for you was was Illinois, with the defeat of a constitutional amendment uh, to permit a progressive income tax, which which Illinois doesn't allow. Uh, this has significant implications for the Democratic Party in the state, as John McGinnis just argued for us in an excellent piece, uh, which was run on Real Clear Politics. Um, you know the the Democrats dominate state politics, but but they're not really going to be able to reward their their base, their political base in the public sector, uh, unions or among the public sector unions anymore, right? Yeah, that's right. And and I mean, they, they won't be able to do it without raising taxes on everybody. Correct. And and we look. There are signs that things are changing here. I mean, Governor Pritzker has come out and and basically said that he doesn't think that Mike Madigan should be running the Democratic Party. Mike Madigan is if there's a if there's one constant in Illinois politics over the last 35 or 40 years, it's it's Mike Madigan, Speaker of the House, who has had basically sort of a death grip on on the political system and has done, uh, you know, more to ruin the state of Illinois fiscal well-being by, uh, you know, basically colluding with public sector unions, right? Um, and, and you know, our unfunded pension liabilities and all of that stuff can be sort of traced directly back to him. And most, most Democrats went along with it. Um, the one Republican, I mean, the Republican Party in Illinois is so anemic, but the one Republican who, you know, Bruce Rauner, the last governor, um, who tried to stand up to him, just basically hit a brick wall and, and failed miserably and then got kicked out of office after one term. But there are signs now that the public, uh, this this was a huge defeat for, for Pritzker, and it does put Democrats in sort of a, a, a tricky spot. And we're starting to see a little bit of some cracks in, in you know, the Madigan wall, and, and we'll see where that goes. I mean, it would, uh, you know, I think for, for the state and for taxpayers in general, regardless of your political affiliation, you know, getting some new blood in Springfield and getting rid of, of Mike Madigan would be would be a good thing that might shake loose some of the just, you know, utter corruption and dysfunction that we've had in this state for, for so long. That's um, that's an outcome that a lot of polls missed, I, I believe. So, so maybe we could address the question of polling with some notable exceptions, Rasmussen, uh, the Trafalgar Group. Um, that British uh, group, the Democracy Institute, the big data poll, a few others, I guess. Uh, but a lot of the polling, especially those from the mainstream press, was wildly off during this election. 
not just with regard to missing the hidden support for Trump, but also, as, as Steve Malanga has recently written for us, with regard to state elections and initiatives, too. Uh, you know, what, what you watch these things very closely. What's been going on with the pollsters? Is this just a bias on their part, or is there kind of a methodological problem that's, that's seeping in? And, you know, why, why did some groups get a lot closer this time, just as they did with Brexit? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's complicated. I think there are a lot of moving parts to that. Part of it is bias, I think. Uh, part of it is um, them not, uh, you know, fixing the, the things that they assured us they would fix after 2016. But I think you make a good point. I think we have to be careful and be specific which is, you know, I, I'm reading all these stories about, oh, you know, the polling industry sucks and it's terrible and we got to throw it all out. Well, that's not really the story. The, the story is there were two there were two sets of pollsters this time around. The ones that you mentioned, Trafalgar, Rasmussen, Insider Advantage, Susquehanna, um, who saw this basically as a very, very close election. They saw Trump being very competitive in Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, certainly Iowa and some of these other places, Arizona, Nevada. And then you had the sort of mainstream media, academic, you know, uh, elite academic institutions like NBC Marist and uh, New York Times Siena, Quinnipiac, Emerson, some of these other folks uh, that were got it completely wrong. I mean, completely wrong. All right. One late poll had Trump behind by, I think, 17 points in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, so that was the ABC News Washington Post poll. And, yeah. and it was obviously way off. And I, I will I will defend them on this part, which is to say, you know, pollsters every now and then are going to get uh, an outlier. I mean, that's just you get a bad sample. It's not representative. And, and that's why there are margins of errors. Uh, that's why there are things called confidence intervals. Right. One out of every 20 polls could be just a just a, a lemon, just a bad one, because it doesn't produce a representative sample. And no matter how you try and weight things, you're going to end up with a funky result. Now, sometimes pollsters don't release those polls. They go back into the field. Sometimes they do. It just depends. And, it, you know, ABC News released this. And, you know, nobody thought that Donald Trump was going to lose, I think, Wisconsin by 17 points. But setting that aside, okay, if you go look at our final average, right, we had uh, Trafalgar again had Biden winning Wisconsin by one point. He's he won it by seven tenths of a uh, seven tenths of a point. So spot on. I think Susquehanna had Biden plus three. Um, and the Marquette University Law School poll, which is seen as quote unquote gold the gold standard, which in 2016 had Hillary Clinton winning by six points, had Biden winning by five. So and and you know they so they didn't really learn their lesson. They were basically where they were last time. But in addition to that. Wisconsin was heavily polled and you had a grouping of polls that were in the at the end of the at the end of the election. They had Biden plus eight, plus eight, plus eight, plus 10 and plus 11. That is not again, that does not even include our final average did not include the ABC News Washington Post poll. So you had you had basically two pollsters that got it right. You had and you had four or five pollsters that got it way wrong. And so as a result, you know, the average in Wisconsin was six and a half or something. And as I mentioned, Biden wins it by, you know, seven tenths of a percentage point. So I do think um, there were some pollsters that, that got, the problem is, and here, this is the crux of it, really, 
is that the elite crowd, the the media, and again, the Nate Silvers of the world, the Nate Cones of the New York Times, you know, ABC News, Washington Post is rated a quote unquote A plus pollster by 538. Quinnipiac is rated an A plus pollster. So all their New York Times Siena was rated an A plus pollster. Meanwhile, the more pro-Trump friendly pollsters, the ones that got it right this election, are rated C minus D pollsters. And so so the those pollsters that were showing results are more favorable to Trump, these the, the the pundits and the experts were just crapping all over them and saying these guys were spam, they don't know what they're doing, this is clearly not right, you know, they're they've got it rigged for Trump. Meanwhile, they had it exactly right. And so you had so you had not only did you have two sets of pollsters with two different worldviews, you had the pundit class and the experts basically dismissing the pollsters who showed it competitive and and accepting the pollsters who, who were way off. And again, they had this preconceived narrative and notion about what this race was going to look like, right? Because because of all these different factors that we were told, how many think pieces did you read about why the, why 2020 was different than 2016, right? Biden's you know more favorable. He's not Hillary Clinton. COVID, uh, you know, all of this stuff, the district polls and this and that. Um, and so the the pundit class decided to take all the data points that fit their preconceived narrative. And and lo and behold, we have a consensus that it's a, you know, 93% chance of Joe Biden winning. And, uh, you know, what was 538? Like 89% Joe Biden's going to win this election. And, and, yeah, again, telling everybody this was not very competitive when in fact it was very competitive. I mean, the three states, you know, everyone always talked about, well, Trump won. Democrats always say, well, it was 77,000 votes in three states that decided that election. Well, this time around, if you look at Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin, if Trump flips those, um, that's 47,000 votes. So 30,000 less. And then in addition to that, you've got, you know, you've got Nevada's 36,000. You've got, you know, Pennsylvania's still 47,000. So um, I think there's, there were, there, there are problems with polling that need to be addressed. Um, but there were some folks who got it right and they should be commended for that. And, and those are the folks who should be given the A plus ratings and we should be doing, right. we should be asking what are they doing and how can the rest of the industry follow them to have a better understanding of how to get it right next time. This is uh, somewhat related to the first question I asked, it's it's part of I think the confusion that we're experiencing right now. You know, it's this shift to voting by mail this year because of the pandemic, uh, but also because some of the election laws in certain states allow activists to uh, collect votes, you know, ballot harvesting, uh, where these third parties, you know, whether it's your neighbors or party activists, can collect and deliver ballots. Now, many Republicans are skeptical of these laws, uh, claiming that people could take advantage of the system by tampering with or disregarding ballots. I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts about uh, whether this is a good or bad idea, um, and are we going to be seeing ballot harvesting and, uh, um, you know, voting by mail as as a kind of permanent uh, feature of our political landscape? So... <clears throat> yes, I think we are going to see vote by mail become more a permanent feature of our landscape. And I think to the extent that we do that, I mean, if I had my druthers, <clears throat> you know, I would hope that that we could, um, you know, enact some uniform standards that everybody would abide by in in sort of 
in dealing with vote by mail. Again, we have 50 different systems and, you know, sort of wildly disparate in terms of, of how they go about things. And it would be nice because I think one of the things, you know, one of the reasons that we are in the situation that we're in is because because of vote by mail, you know, we have this we have this turnout on election day that drives the numbers in one direction. Then you start counting these these uh, mail votes and 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 it's not done in a transparent way. It's done, you know, late at night and then they stop and then you wake up the next morning and and there are, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of votes that have moved the needle in the other direction. And 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 that just inherently breeds suspicion among, you know, partisans as to how these numbers, the ebb and flow of these numbers. So, um, you know, Florida and some of these other Texas and some of these other states are good models for putting a unified standard in place where, you know, fine, accept, accept mail-in ballots, but they've got to be counted before election day. And, and, you know, we're not going to be counting votes after election day. And, you know, they have to have, uh, you know, signatures and yada, 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 all that stuff gets checked because otherwise we're going to end up in a situation where, um, you know, the, the already, regardless of what happens moving forward, um, you know, half the country, 70 million plus people are going to walk away from this election thinking it was stolen. Yeah. And we had a poll come out this morning and said 70% of Republicans do not feel like this was a, a free and fair election. That is a terrible thing for our democracy. Um, and in an era where there are no longer, we're so divided sort of politically, there are no blowout elections anymore. There are no landslide elections. We're constantly fighting over the same five or six states and with with some slight variations and some are moving in one direction, some are moving the other, but they're close and they're going to continue to be close. And so I, I do think we got to get a handle on it. Personally, what I would like to see also is I, I just think early voting is is just a, a terrible um, idea in terms of and Carl Cannon and I have discussed this. I mean, our solution is you make you make election day a holiday and you make it a two day holiday. Well, basically a four day weekend, right? So elections on elections on Tuesday. You get you get you know Monday Tuesday off and voting starts on Saturday so you have early voting but it's only for three days you vote Saturday Sunday Monday Tuesday and that's it you're done and you know you can still use absentee ballots if you're an overseas military person or you're you know elderly or infirmed or whatever but we do away with the idea that we're going to be voting for you know six weeks or something before the election takes place and we do away with the the mail in balloting um, personally I would but um, that's just me, uh, but I, I, I think we, I think mail-in balloting is going to be the future. We just have to figure out how to do it right so that people have have confidence in the system. Because the way we're doing it now, um, and and the way we did it this year by sort of trying to jam all this stuff in because of the pandemic in like six months, states that have never done it before, it it's exactly the train wreck that people thought it was going to be. Certainly looks that way, man. Um, anything uh, new on the horizon for uh, real clear politics in your related sites? Any new sites launching? Um, I'm sure your your uh, traffic must be insane right now with everybody. <laughs> you know, for us, we're still a pretty small operation, as you know, Brian. So, like these election years, we just try and get through them, and then we we 
come up for air afterwards and and plot the future. Look, I think uh, as far as as far as the site goes, I mean, we don't have any plans to launch any any new verticals uh, in the in the near future. Um, we're going to focus on on the politics side. I mean, we have to do. I think we're going to have to do a review of of all of our polling averages and and talk very seriously about how we go about our business, given how bad some of the pollsters were. Maybe we need to make adjustments because, you know, one of the things that we have always done is we've just produced a simple average, right? We've just, the numbers are the numbers and you plug them in and, you know, 538 and some of these other places, they they weight pollsters, as I said, and they grade them. They, they give them different weights based on their gradings. They have a bunch of little, you know, secret sauce that they use in order to tweak these things. And we've never done any of that. We've just put in, you know, the numbers kind of the raw numbers. average, right? Yeah, it's just a raw average. And 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 I think by and large that has served us very, very well, um, particularly this year. But but again, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that maybe we need to talk about doing and and that we can do do different, do better. Um, because I do think, you know, the 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 trust in the polling industry writ large has taken a hit, another hit. And, and I'm not sure how that changes, how the public views pollsters in general, how that, how they view, you know, averages and, and sites like us who, who aggregate polling information. So look, I think everybody's got to take a good hard look in the mirror and figure out, you know, what they did wrong. And there does need to be, I do, you know, there, there does need to be accountability for what happened. This is not, and, and, and I think we need to, you know, we need to hold people accountable as well. This cannot be just a, you know, you know, walk away from the scene of an accident and, and turn around and start telling everyone, you know, that once again, that, you know, exactly what you're doing because you just proved that you don't know what you're doing. And so we'll see how that goes. Um, it didn't go so well four years ago, but maybe this will, uh, I'm not holding my breath, but maybe we'll have a, little more introspection and humility this time around. Well, thanks very much, Tom. Don't, don't forget to check out, if you're not doing so already, uh, Real Clear Politics for your election-related coverage and general political coverage at all times. Uh, you can follow its co-founder and our guest today, Tom Bevan, on Twitter, at TomBevanRCP, that's B-E-V-A-N. And you can also find City Journal on Twitter, at CityJournal and on Instagram, at CityJournal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Uh, thanks very much for listening, as always. And thanks, Tom, very much for joining us. And it's, it's great to talk with you. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.